Um, hello and welcome to um, the Gatehouse Video Podcast. My name is Colin Nugent and I'm joined by Vanessa McKinley, uh, one of my colleagues in the Clinical Negligence and Personal Injury Department. Um, I mainly do personal injury. Vanessa solely does inquests and clinical negligence and has spent many years up, up to 2000 uh, actually working in the NHS. Today, we're going to look at the case of uh, Griffiths and Chewy, or Chewy and Griffiths, depending on which court you're in, which has made its way slowly from first instance up through the various levels of appellate courts to the currently the Court of Appeal, and perhaps even further than that. Uh, today, we'll be looking at the decision itself, what it says, and more importantly, what it might mean for you, despite the fact that that's not an area of work that you might cover up at all. So, Vanessa, for those of our viewers who have recently come back from North Korea on, on their holiday or have just forgotten what um, Griffiths and Chui said, um, what are the takeaways from the decision below and in the Court of Appeal? Well, the central issue here was whether a court is entitled to reject the uncontroverted evidence of an expert. And if so, in what circumstances can they reject it? And so uncontroverted here means that the expert wasn't cross-examined at trial and there was no opposing expert evidence before the court. Uh, this case was a, a case where the claimant alleged that he suffered a gastric illness as a result of eating and drinking contaminated food and drink at his Turkish holiday hotel. He said that he had all his food and drink at the hotel, apart from a pre-flight burger at the airport and then part of a meal in town in Turkey. His symptoms started a couple of days into his holiday and then got a bit better. And then they became worse a few days after the meal that he had out in town. He was uh, later admitted to hospital in Turkey with acute gastroenteritis. And they took some samples and those samples showed parasitic and viral pathogens, but didn't show bacterial pathogens. So at first instance at trial, claimant had reports from a gastroenterologist and a microbiologist. And it's the microbiologist's report, Professor Pennington, uh, that's central to this case in this appeal. And he supported causation here. Defendant didn't have any expert evidence at all, didn't ask for the microbiologist to attend to be cross-examined, but did put the claimant to proof throughout the litigation. Claimant gave his factual evidence about the conditions at the hotel, what he'd eaten and drunk and when and when his illness started and how it progressed. And all of that was accepted by the trial judge. Professor Pennington's report, which is central here, as I say, was short, described as minimalist. I think it numbered four paragraphs in total. And trial judge found that there were deficiencies in that report, such that she was not satisfied that the burden of proof was discharged in terms of causation. So she couldn't find on the balance of probabilities that contaminated food and drink at the hotel had been the cause of claimant's illness. So on first appeal, um, Mr. Justice Spencer heard that appeal. It was held that the court was not entitled to analyse and critique an uncontroverted report in the same way as it can a contested report. Uh, and the judge said that role of the trial judge falls away when it's uncontroverted evidence. Um, it was held that all the court has to do with an uncontroverted report is look at whether it fulfills the minimum standards, i.e. does it substantially comply with CPR 35? Uh, and it's not set out in CPR 35 in these circumstances that you have to give reasons for your conclusions. The judge did recognise that there were serious deficiencies in the report, but said that it was not their ipse dixit, so this phrase that means that uh, uh, something is asserted without proof. Uh, and indeed, he said it's difficult to see when a CPR 35 compliant report ever would just be that. 
So that was then appealed, uh, and we're now left with the Court of Appeal decision, where the majority held that looking back at the authorities that were cited to them, there isn't a bright line distinction to be drawn between a controverted report and an uncontroverted report. There's no rule, uh, the court said, that an uncontroverted report can't be rejected by the trial court. And what sets this case apart from the other authorities that were put before the Court of Appeal, was that this report from Professor Pennington was found to be inadequate in a number of respects. Court of Appeal said it's not inherently unfair for a party to wait until closing submissions to make challenges to that report. High-risk strategy, clearly, but not impermissible. And the court held that it can't be impermissible for the court to assess that expert's evidence where there's no opposing expert. Otherwise, you leave yourself in a situation where essentially you're rubber stamping a report, even where the conclusion of that report, they said, might be supported by nonsense. They said also that they're not entitled to, um, a party isn't entitled to, to an opportunity to make good deficiencies in a report during cross-examination. That's not an entitlement. And they held that the trial judge had made an evaluative judgment that Professor Pennington's report in this instance was insufficient to satisfy the burden in relation to causation. And that's something that she was perfectly entitled to do. Well, I think looking at the decision below, uh, when I talk about the, um, the first appeal and indeed the second appeal, there doesn't appear to be much criticism of the actual claimant in terms of the way the, uh, he gives evidence. Um, so I think as Lord Justice Bean said, the claimant must be wondering, well, why did I lose? So where, did, where does fault lie here? Um, why didn't the claimants prove his case and get some damages? I'm sure he's asking that question. What do you think? Yeah, I'm sure he's asking that question too. I think where the fault lay here was that this was a very short report and it didn't go far enough in its reasoning behind the conclusion that it drew to discharge that burden when causation was clearly a live issue. And there were a number of deficiencies in it. So for example, Professor Pennington had said he couldn't rule out, looking at the timeline, that these were in fact two separate infections because the claimant got sick, got a bit better, went out, had something to eat elsewhere, not the hotel, and then got worse again. So he couldn't rule out two separate in infections, but he didn't address why that meal eaten outside the hotel later on wasn't responsible for that second episode of illness. Um, there was also an issue about the claimant's timeline, the development of his illness, not fitting with the usual development of a Giardia illness, which is what Professor Pennington found on the balance of probabilities this was. He was also criticised for not being clear enough about how this was a bacterial cause when only parasites and viruses were found in this gentleman's samples. And he didn't also, uh, the trial judge found, uh, address why non-food-related uh, methods of transmission might be discounted or should be discounted in this case. And also he was asked in Part 35 questions to set out the range of opinion that there might be here and to give his reasons for why his op opinion fell at a certain point within that range. And she found that he hadn't done that. All he'd done in answer to that question is say, well, these are the factors that experts would look at. And these are the, the, the factors that I looked at as well. But he didn't actually set out any of that reasoning or give that range of opinion. 
So it, it must be right, it seems to me, that that's where the, the fault lay in this case, and that's why the claimant didn't win. So looking at the broader lessons to be drawn from the case more generally, because um, it seems that the analysis of the expert evidence and the approach in terms of both tactics and in terms of how one approaches procedural issues has lessons for those well outside personal injury into any type of litigation which you have experts. So just looking at it in the context of the civil procedure uh, rules as a whole, now, the whole point of the civil procedure, of course, is that litigation is the last resort and parties are encouraged as much as possible, perhaps even more so going forward, to resolve their disputes without the need to issue a claim. So what we have here is uh, a claimant who's going into a trial um, with factual evidence, which wasn't in the end uh, challenged, with an expert who wasn't actually directly challenged, um, an expert who clearly is an expert in this field, Professor Pennington is very well known, um, they must have thought, well, the only thing that can be done is assuming, assuming the claimant comes up to proof, well, we're home and dry. But that wasn't what happened. So we had a situation which nothing, um, nothing happened at trial which undermined either the claimant's evidence or the expert's evidence, but in the closing submissions, the defendant managed to create sufficient doubt in the judge's mind that the claimant lost. So if the purpose of the CPR and CPR 35 is to ensure that as far as possible, everybody knows what the issues are going forward. And you have a situation which um, in this instance, the defendant, but it could be the claimant. So in this instance, the defendant keeps their powder dry until closing submissions. Well, that's a perfectly good tactical uh, ploy. And it worked in this instance, um, it didn't work in appeal, and then it was reinstated again, but it worked in this instance. So do you think that's, the approach of the defendant and its essentially endorsement by the Court of Appeal. I think that's in keeping with the way that litigation ought to be run as envisaged by the civil procedure rules and the overriding objective. Um, well, I mean, this is what Lord Justice being referred to in his dissenting judgment as trial by ambush. So waiting until the last ditch, until closing submissions, to make any criticism of this report at all. Yes, part 35 questions have been put, but one would expect, according to that dissenting judgment, for the defendant to be upfront about the fact that they were going to be challenging the veracity of this report, not the veracity of it, but the, 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 the reasoning behind the conclusions and whether or not it discharged the burden of proof. Um, and as you say, you know, is that trial by ambush not to do that, not to make that clear, or is it merely good defendant litigation strategy? defendant would probably say we made it absolutely clear from day one we were putting the claimant to proof it's his burden of proof and that falls to his factual evidence and to his expert evidence on causation we are entitled to wait until closing submissions and make our points at that stage I mean what are your thoughts about um the 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 duty or the whether or not you would expect, whether it amounts to a duty or not, whether you would expect a defendant in this situation to put the claimant on notice somehow that they were going to be making those submissions rather than perhaps let the claimant think that there isn't going to be a challenge to that evidence at all because you haven't brought any of your own or asked to cross-examine him. Well, I suspect if you were a defendant, um, either uh, reading the decision or indeed watching this, you might think, well, hang on a minute, the uh, Court of Appeal has endorsed the approach that the defendant took in this case. And there's been no overt criticism of the defendant, certainly by the majority. So 
it's a perfectly good strategy. Why would we do anything different? So why would we uh, alert the claimant to the fact that we think the claimant's evidence is inadequate? We have no obligation to do that. Well, that's what the Court of Appeal have said, and who are we to overrule them? Um, but ultimately, I, I do wonder whether, in fact, it is consistent with the obligation of both parties to assist the court in meeting the overriding objective. Because the overriding objective, of course, as we all know from um, day one of pupillage, is that um, it's to ensure that, that the cases are dealt with justly. Well, if only one party knows that the evidence is going to be challenged in closing, and that party is, in this instance, the defendant, the claimant doesn't know that, are they coming into the... Um, are they coming into the trial on an equal footing? Um, could the defendant be criticised by the trial judge for not doing that? Well, perhaps, but ultimately the, claim, the defendant has the court appeal behind them. But let's assume you are a, in this instance, a claimant lawyer, and you have a report on your desk. And you might think it's a very good report, um, but you think it'll do the trick. The defendant hasn't got a report. What do you do then? Well, you, you, of course, you have the option of having a word with your, with your uh, expert and inviting your expert to um, uh, perhaps flesh it out a bit. But the expert is under no obligation to do that. And the expert has, uh, under the terms of its Part 35 engagement, that, that expert has undertaken not to be influenced by anything which is said by their instructing sister, whether that's claimant or defendant. So what happens to the expert, and, and perhaps this is what Professor Pennington did, if the expert says, no, I'm perfectly content with my report and I'm not prepared to change it. I'm not prepared to give any more reasons. That's a perfectly good report. So there you are. You're stuck with this report because the expert won't flesh it out. You fear that the defendant or the other side is going to challenge it at trial. Um, what do you do? Um, you can't beef up your claimant's evidence. So any party in those circumstances, and there must be lots of people out there who've got expert reports sitting on their desk and looking at them with a slightly different eye now, surely they must be thinking to themselves, well, what should I do? And perhaps even if the other side um, have got their own expert in particular circumstances, maybe not all of the reports challenged, maybe part of the reports challenged. Maybe this is a construction case or maybe it's a commercial case and you've still got an expert. You meant the other side may or may not have one. To what extent is there going to be a challenge that you're going to be aware of? So what do you do? Well, Perhaps one thing you could do is you could write to the opposing party. Again, in this example, we're talking about claimants and defendants, and the claimants got the report and the defendant may challenge it. And say to the defendant in open terms, or, or a, a, a notice to admit facts perhaps, do you challenge any aspect of this report? Or words that effect. I mean, the, the wording can be refined as required. And if the defendant doesn't come back and say essentially yes, well, then you have to take steps. Well, the defendant could come back simply at that stage and say, as we've said from the outset, and as we've pleaded in our defence, claimants put to proof. Yeah. I'm not going to set out for you what I'm going to now, what I'm going to later say in closing submissions at the conclusion of the trial. It's your expert report. This is your expert's evidence. And we don't accept causation is made out in this case. Well, of course, one of the um, tricks of answering Part 35 questions or particularly Part 18 questions is to give an answer which looks like it's an answer but doesn't actually say anything at all. And that would be a perfect example, a perfectly good example <laughs> of a defendant refusing to answer the question but not being seen to refuse to answer the question. So what do you do in those circumstances? Well, in those circumstances, it seems to me you would have grounds, it seems, 
to apply to the court for that expert to attend trial and be tendered for cross-examination. Um, I'm not sure you really have any other choice. If you've invited the defendant to make its position clear, the defendant has essentially batted the ball back and said, well, we're putting you to proof and that's all you're entitled to know about. Then in those circumstances, are you going to take your chances at trial or are you going to ask for permission to call the expert? Because, of course, if you did ask for permission, the judge is bound to say to the defendant, well, what do you say about this? Well, the defendant then has to make their election. Mm. Do, do they allow the expert to come along to trial and challenge them? Or do they say we don't challenge them? But I think any claimants in similar circumstances where there is a one-sided expert report which hasn't been formally agreed would be very unwise not to do that. Mm. I think what's interesting here is that perhaps um, we're all used to cases where there are things that could be reasoned in a more detailed way in an expert's report that you know that's going to get sorted out in the witness box. They're going to be asked about it. They will expand upon their reasoning. Judge can ask them questions if need be. And you know it's all going to come out in the wash during the trial. But here, where you're not going to have that expert in court, perhaps it will make people sit down and think, is this going to cut it? It's a four-paragraph report. He, in in the sense of one of the Part 35 questions that were put, he hasn't addressed it, and that's pretty plain. Uh, and it's set out in the in the Court of Appeal judgment. Uh, they set out those those relevant paragraphs and that CPR Part 35 question and, and reply, and you can see that he hasn't addressed it. Maybe this will make parties on either side sit down and look very carefully at their expert report, not thinking, well, it's going to get, it's either not going to be contested or when it is, it will get sorted out in oral evidence uh, and actually look at it pre-trial and say, does this, standing on its own, does this do what we need it to do to support our case? Uh, and it's interesting you raise the point about experts refusing to expand upon their reasoning. I'm not sure I've ever had in, in many years of having conferences with experts and asking them to expand on it. I don't think I've ever had one say, I'm not going to do that. Um, but they, they've been more than happy to expand on it when you maybe ask questions in a slightly different way or raise issues that they haven't thought about yet. It seems to me they're quite happy to turn their mind to it and expand upon their reasons for their conclusion. Um, so I, I think it would be really unusual for a, an expert to say, no, that's it. You're not having any more from me. In fact, I don't think that would be complying with their duty, would it? I, I think you're broadly right. Um, and I think most experts, or almost all experts, as in your experience as well as mine, if asked to expand upon the reasons, generally will. But um, ultimately, the problem is the claimant doesn't have any control of their experts in the sense that the expert will put down what they want in the report. And the expert may well say, that's all you're getting. Um, because... Uh, we're all, as lawyers, we're all, um, with the perfect wisdom of hindsight, we're all very good. And you can sort of not really blame the claimant's listeners in this particular instance, where they probably didn't have a budget to call this expert, Professor Pennington. There was nobody on the other side. Part 35 questions have been put. I suspect if they had gone in front of the DJ and asked for permission to call the expert, the DJ would have said no. Um, Things, I think, may have changed as a consequence of this um, in circumstances where we, we now have, because of the failure of the expert either to prepare a proper report on, on the basis of what's being said by the judge at first uh, at, on appellate, uh, um, at, on the first appeal, 
And judging by the consequences of it, I can see that a district judge or perhaps a judge would be a lot more amenable to that sort of application and at least requiring the other side to set out the position clearly than perhaps they would have been um, when this case first came up um, a number of months ago. Yeah, and I think from a practical point of view, I think that the sort of points that perhaps will be at the forefront of people's minds now, both barristers and solicitors, is don't make any assumptions about your expert evidence being unchallenged. Don't make any assumptions about it being accepted by the court if it's unchallenged by the other side. And put your deficiencies right well before you get to trial. Um, it just it just puts a different a very different emphasis on it. Uh, I think probably m- many people have have gone forward with litigation thinking, well, this isn't being challenged, therefore it's going to be accepted. And in ninety nine point nine percent of cases, of course, it would be, um, but not necessarily. And this is the issue going forward, isn't it? Is it if this goes to the Supreme Court, what are they going to do about this, Colin? <laughs> <laughs> well. Um... Just before we get to that point, I was, I was yeah. just thinking about, uh, I was just, when you were talking, I was just thinking about the use of Part 18 questions, because Part 18 questions are, I think, sadly underused in litigation. And I think one of the reasons they're sadly underused is because um, judges take very divergent views as to whether or not they're going to require the other side to answer them. Some judges will require you to answer them. Some judges will, taking exactly the same questions, will not require you to answer them. Um, it, it is remarkable in my experience, the questions which you think are going to be um, ordered as a matter of course and are not. Um, but that perhaps is something that practitioners ought to just bear in mind, thinking to themselves, well, should I be sending some part 18 questions? And if so, what they should, should they be addressed to? And particularly in circumstances where your responses, which are no doubt very carefully crafted, come back and they don't actually answer the question. Talking about answering the question, coming on to yours, um, well, uh, permission has been sought from the Supreme Court, as I understand it, um, and we'll see whether that where that goes. I suspect there may be a decent prospect that the Supreme Court may be interested in this. But I think the Supreme Court, when considering the case, will probably do two things. Number one, they will not wish to draw in terms of any procedural aspects, as you described, a bright line between this type of report and that type of report, or what it says and what it doesn't say. They will always wish to give a large measure of discretion to the trial judge. The second thing they want to do is they want in any way, shape or form, circumscribe the um, decision-making powers of the trial judge and in any way suggest that the expert reports or the experts themselves should have any, uh, any say in the outcome of the trial. Because as is said so often, it's probably a cliche, um, cases are decided by judges and not by experts. So I anticipate that what they may do is they may suggest as a matter of course, and this may be taken up the rules committee, that um, parties are obligated at some point, probably at the PTR, to set out whether in fact the evidence from the other side, for example, the expert evidence is challenged, and if so, in what way. That would be, it seems to me, a very simple way around it, requiring very little change to the way the current procedure works, and it would avoid the, the Supreme Court getting involved in essentially procedural aspects because the, as we know from a number of cases in the past, which we won't mention, um, the involvement of the appellate courts in procedural issues doesn't always work out well. So more PTRs, 
because in many cases they're dispensed with, aren't they? So um, that might be one thing that comes out of this. I mean, I I agree. I think it's really difficult to see how the Supreme Court would make it impermissible for a trial judge to evaluate an expert's report in any circumstances. I just don't see how that sits with a judge's duty to look at and evaluate all of the evidence before them. And if if they're going to draw this bright line between controverted and uncontroverted reports and then say you cannot, if it's uncontested, uncontroverted, you cannot evaluate it. You just have to essentially rubber stamp it. I think that's 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 usurping the role of the judge, it seems to me, in in looking at everything before them when they when they come to their decision. I I think it'd be I think you're right. I think the, the prospects of the Supreme Court in any way, shape, or form, implicitly or explicitly criticising the trial judge is tiny. And um, I think if criticism were brought to bear at all, it might be on on the report. And uh, there may be further use of this lovely phrase, Ipsy Dixit, which of course we were all very familiar with. uh, We didn't have to Google that We just We just forgotten what I said. (laughs) So other than that then, I mean, in, in terms of experts, and what the duties are on them. Is there a risk of this giving rise to, apart from further PTRs, uh, satellite litigation involving experts when claimants are losing their case when their expert is the only expert? Well, I mean, you will have seen in the last two weeks, there have been two decisions, one called uh, uh, LV against Mercier, and another one involving uh, Chewy called uh, Chewy uh, against Walker and Lee, Lee being the name of the expert. Uh, in one of those instances, um, the uh, expert was required to pay the entirety of the cost of the trial, I think £55,000 by, as I recall. In the other one, the application failed. Um, but it does indicate that when somebody loses a trial, because of a failure, talk, going back to what you said at the beginning, because of failure of some party to do something they should have done, and that failure is highlighted by the judge, if they, if they lose against the defendant, they're going to look to the next person who's insured, and the next person on the line who's insured is the expert. Um, so I think there is prospect that this will um, add to the slowly kindling um, fire um, under claims against experts to re- recover um, the cost of trials, which hitherto um, has been the, pro- the provenance of defendants. But I-, I can see circumstances which claimants may well say, I'm not suggesting this instance, but uh, generally that if a claimant loses because an expert does not fulfill their Part 35 duties, the claimant may come looking to the expert to make up the damages gap they didn't get against the defendant. And what about the risk of expert reports tripling in length as they give lengthy reasons for absolutely every point that they're making? Because I don't think that's <laughs> the point here. I don't think that's what anybody's after. That's certainly not the courts. Well, I think I think the longest the longest medical legal expert I, I, I've seen is, is about this psychiatric psychiatric board about eighty seven pages. Um, this one was what three or four paragraphs. So I think there's probably scope for a, a report which some comes somewhere between four paragraphs and almost 90 pages. Um, and I'd like to think that almost every expert, um, particularly the ones that have received training, um, can probably manage to strike the balance between a report which covers every point without necessarily having every single point done to death, as well as about 200 pages of appendices. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, thank you all for um, watching our video podcast. Um, this and a number of others, including a recorded podcast, are on the Gatehouse website. Um, please feel free to look at those. If you're looking at this on YouTube, please click like, subscribe, and all the rest of it. But until we see you again, uh, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Thank you. Gatehouse Chambers is a barrister's chambers which specialises in legal advice and advocacy in the areas of clinical negligence and personal injury, commercial dispute resolution, construction, insolvency, insurance, private client, professional liability and property. This recording is provided free of charge for information purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. No responsibility for the accuracy and or correctness of the information and commentary or for any consequences of relying on it is assumed or accepted by any member of Gatehouse Chambers or by Gatehouse Chambers as a whole.